0: In our first session on 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10, we deal with what is probably the
1: most sobering section in the letter.
0: Perhaps in all of Paul's letters, it has to do with what Jesus calls hell. Jesus uses the word hell more than anybody else in the Bible. Uh, Paul never uses the word hell but the reality here is unmistakable and sobering. So, Father, as we look at this, I pray for a spirit of fear and trembling for ourselves and compassion for the lost and a deep, deep fear and respect for you in your justice. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: They... The they refers to the immediately preceding those who do not know God, those who do not obey the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away
0: from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes. So, another reference to the second coming on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed, because our testimony among you was believed. So what Paul is doing here is gathering up this just repayment back in verse 6 of the preceding section and gathering up this righteous judgment of God, gathering up this vengeance that is coming upon them. So, And now he unpacks this in what it really involves. What is the vengeance? What is the just repayment on uh, those who are afflicting you? And his answer is, it is the suffering or the enduring or the receiving or the payment of punishment, the payment of a penalty Now, let's just pause right there and make sure that we see the implications of that because there are lots of people who try their best to describe hell as the natural outcome of
1: human corruption. Like death
0: is the natural outcome of cancer, or heart disease is the natural outcome of obesity. And the net effect of those arguments is to diminish this reality. This is not a description of a natural outcome. This is a description of a judge imposing a just penalty.
1: This is destruction
0: being meted out by God. This is not an impulse developing from within. As true as that may be, that sin results in destruction. That's not what Paul is teaching here. So that's the first thing to observe. This is a legal sentence being carried out. And the legal sentence
1: is destruction. What does that mean? It does not mean annihilation. It means ruination,
0: devastation, laid waste. Let's look at the other uses of this word, Olithron destruction. Here it is in First Thessalonians. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. This is ruin and devastation, like defeat in battle, or like the destruction that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus uses that illustration in this context. Here it is again, First Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is the Greek word apolion, but here's the word Paul uses in our text. Ruin, plunges people into ruin and destruction. It doesn't mean he puts them, riches don't put them out of existence. Riches ruin their lives. They unfit their lives for being what they were designed to be. Here it is one last time in 1 Corinthians 5. You are to deliver, this is a church discipline situation where a man was sleeping with his mother, a stepmother, it appears. So what's to happen? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Most people would argue this destruction of the flesh means some terrible disease or even death, not annihilation. That's not the point. So. When we hear the word suffer the punishment of destruction, don't think, oh, he's going to put everybody out of existence. Putting a sinner out of existence is not punishment, it's relief from punishment. Going out of existence is exactly what every sinner would like, not what they fear after death. This is positioned and put into our mind as a punishment, not an escape from punishment, into annihilation. And then the word eternal. This is what's so sobering, so frightening, scares little children, scares me. It ought to scare us. This is a horrifying thought, isn't it? What does the word eternal mean?
1: it means never-ending, everlasting. It's the word used by Paul, what, eight
0: times to refer to eternal life. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. This is the word he uses over and over for life. So, eternal destruction is the ruin of That is the opposite of eternal life. As long as eternal life lasts, so does the eternal ruin. Here's Jesus' way of speaking about it at the end of the parable in Matthew 25. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So you see, this punishment correlates with this life, and so eternal here corresponds with eternal there. And if we believe in eternal life, then we're obliged to believe in eternal punishment. Here's the description of that eternal suffering in John's Revelation. And I quote this just because it has the strongest language of eternity in the New Testament. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and Ever, So he multiplies the forever to strengthen it unto the ages of the ages, and they have no rest, day or night. So it's not just eternal, it's constant. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. So eternal here means everlasting, never-ending, Destruction means ruin, and we see elsewhere the ruin involves suffering, affliction, as Paul said earlier in this paragraph. Let's, let's close with this
1: question. What would you answer to someone who said, isn't eternal punishment out of proportion
0: to temporal disobedience so here are these people they are suppressing the knowledge of god as we saw they don't want to have god in their knowledge and they do not obey the gospel if they've heard it they reject and spurn the best news in all the world and the death of jesus for sinners and they suppress all the evidences that there's a god over them that they should submit to and love and trust and thank and honor Isn't it an overreaction or out of proportion to punish them with eternal destruction when they may have done those sins for only 70 or 80 years? What would you answer to that? There are two answers. Well, there's more than two. I'll give you three for you to think about. One is that this not knowing God, this sinful suppression of God, and this uh, refusal to submit to the gospel goes on forever. There are no penitent people in hell. Hell is not a place where people love God, love the gospel, love the truth. These things for which they are being punished never
1: cease. Second. The seriousness of a crime
0: rises not only in proportion to the length that the crime took to perform, but in proportion to the worthiness of the person against whom you committed the crime. If you kick a dog, you're a bad person.
1: If you kick a person, you're a worse person. If you kick God, you
0: have bumped up the seriousness of your crime infinitely. The, the eternality of the punishment corresponds not to the length of time it took to perform the indignity against God by suppressing the knowledge of Him and thrusting away His gospel. The seriousness of the punishment rose in direct proportion. To the greatness of the God that you spurned. And the third thing is that there are degrees of punishment in hell, and God will be precisely just in the way He handles the unbelievers. Here's the picture of that. The one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone who to whom much is given, much will be required, and from him whom they have entrusted much they will demand the more. That's an a pointer to degrees of punishment in the lust or final state.
1: So I end on the note of, of
0: seriousness. This is a vastly horrifying reality. And if you stumble over it, let me suggest this. Instead of bringing our small views of God to this text and thus finding fault with God's measured statement of what punishment is appropriate for the spurning of his name, do the other thing. That is, Come to this text willing to learn about the majesty and dignity and height and glory and greatness and worth and beauty of the God who must be so great that this would be warranted. In other words, flip your mind around and let this text teach you about God so that this punishment makes sense rather than saying I'll start with what I know, namely, this can't make sense because you don't have anything like the vision of God that you should. That's my approach anyway. I want to get my head around what kind of majesty and greatness must lie behind this kind of justice, because I am sure that my own conceptions of the greatness of God and the majesty of God and the beauty of God and what it means to trample him in the dirt is not
1: nearly as serious as it should be.